0: Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you will find such things as in depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his 2nd Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory. As Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. So as I was mentioning, the, the book of Psalms is truly not only the, the prayer book of God's people, it is the hymn book of God's people. It is, it is so fascinating to me to think that in ancient times, thousands of years ago now, every one of these Psalms was actually put to music, and, and they sang them when they went to temple, and, and they were part of the worship of God, and people that didn't, again, the scriptures were not collected in a book, they were individual scrolls, they were hidden away in a temple in the temple, so people in their homes didn't have necessarily the scriptures right at their fingertips like we do today. We have such a privilege to have these, to have the Bible at, at our at our every, you know, at the, right at the tip of our fingers. It, and I wonder how often we really take full advantage of God's word to us. And I've, I know from different times when I've taught through different Psalms, there's, I think we're living in an era of time where the church in general has, has not done a, a good job of teaching what I want to call expository preaching or teaching. And that is, what is the true meaning of the scripture? Really delving into to what does the scripture mean? What did it mean then? What does it mean now? How can it apply to our lives today? And there's no better place to, be, to really do that than the book of Psalms, because this is the very first set of scriptures that people really began to read on a daily basis and pray on a daily basis I mean, there was, of course, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. But in, in many ways, the book of Psalms is actually a counterpart to the book of the law. The Pentateuch is the name for the first five books of the Bible. So interestingly enough, the book of Psalms has five books. Again, a type of the law. While the the books of the law of Moses, the, the Pentateuch, give us not only the history, but the actual Mosaic law of of God's covenant people, the book of Psalms give us the application of that law. They they show us how to live. And here's the most fascinating thing. Let me me give you just some details about the book uh, of Psalms. There are five books, and it's broken down like this. Psalm 1 through Psalm 41 equals book 1. Psalm 42 through Psalm 72 equals book two. Psalm 73 through Psalm 89 is book four. Psalm 90 through Psalm 106 is, uh, is book four. I'm sorry, I might have said that twice. And then Psalm 107 to 150 is book five. So 150 psalms split into five books and, uh, as some people think they're just kind of random, there's really an incredible order to them. There's an incredible structure to them, but we have to begin at the beginning to really understand them. Here's a couple of things we can, we can note about the book of Psalms. Number one, David, King David, is the author of 73 Psalms. We know he's the author of 73 Psalms. Now, there are 39 Psalms that we don't know who the author is? We, they're called orphan psalms because we just don't know the author. It's very possible that David wrote many of those as well, but we do not know that. So, seventy-three psalms are ascribed to David. One psalm is ascribed to Moses. Do we know which one? Anybody know which one? You type it in online for us. It is Psalm ninety. Psalm ninety is a psalm of Moses. Now Solomon, David's son, King Solomon, wrote two psalms. There are 11 psalms that are ascribed to the sons of Korah, an Old Testament figure. There are 12 psalms that are ascribed to Asaph. And they always talk about the choir master. Uh, Asaph was the name of a, a choir master of the temple. Then there is one psalm each to somebody named Haman and Ethan, one psalm each. And it's Psalm 88 to Haman and 89 to Ethan. And then Hezekiah, king of Israel, add 10 psalms. So there you have 150 psalms. Now, in those 150, we can say that there is two overarching themes. Those themes are the king and the kingdom. King and the kingdom. Somewhere woven through all of these psalms in every one is the theme of the king and the kingdom. And there's a key word in all of the psalms that you must become familiar with. And that key word is hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's talk about that word for a minute. It is a compound word in the old Hebrew language. Hallel in Hebrew means to praise. Yah is the first part of the holy name of God, Yahweh, Yahweh, or Yahweh as we say in English. Sometimes it's called Jehovah. Jehovah, interestingly enough, just a little bit of of side piece here, even though I know in evangelical history Jehovah has been a popular word, it's even in songs, uh, one of my favorite songs I just love. It's so worshipful, In the Presence of Jehovah. You know, it's so pretty. But Jehovah's actually not a name for God. It's a, it's a made-up name for God. Isn't that fascinating? It wasn't until the, the, Maso- the Masoretic text, the Masoretes are a group of Jews that lived in the 9th and 10th century after Christ, so the, the, near the end of the millennial, the Masoretes were responsible for recording, in written form, the scriptures of the Old Testament, and they were uh, they were Jews. So they were Jews uh, translating their ancient scrolls, their ancient writings. And there's been you know now not only a thousand but maybe two thousand years or fifteen hundred years at least since a lot of these. Sc- original texts were written down in the Old Testament period of time. And real Hebrew, authentic, biblical Old Testament Hebrew was not spoken anymore. In fact, it was barely spoken by Jesus' day. By Jesus' day. Isn't that interesting? We, we We don't think of these things. But by Jesus' day, the language of God's, the Jewish people of God's chosen was Aramaic by most, Some spoke Greek, especially the more learned ones, because Greek was the spoken word of the whole world by that time. But there was a temple Hebrew. There was a a worshipful Hebrew that was carried on, but it wasn't linguistic among the people that much. Um, So these Masoretes had the job of trying to develop Jewish scriptures in a translation, a pure Jewish translation. And there was a transliteration Error. I I don't know if transliteration is the right word because trust me, I'm not a Bible scholar. I just read a lot. Okay, I'm not a Bible scholar. So if transliteration is not the right word, but the the vowels, Hebrew has an alphabet. Um, I talked about it a few weeks ago on the Psalms. Um, There are 22 letters to the Hebrew alphabet. There are no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet. So they were they used little dots and slashes little 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 marks of the pen in order to what they called vowel pointing okay and to so that it could be read easier in a written language you need vowels to know how to pronounce a word and there were some it doesn't take much to make a slip and the word changes a little bit now here's the beauty and this is really important okay God's word has no error of any kind that's going to change the faith of Jesus Christ or change the the story of God. These are small little grammatical type errors. Um, But it changed the word Yahweh to Yehovah instead of Yahweh. And it, it just changed it. And so in the protestant reformation and kind of the middle ages right before that that word jehovah in the english-speaking world is what developed even though it was always from the oldest days of the original scriptures yahweh if you look at the my the holy name of god is i i wish i had a a, a big whiteboard you know to to write on i used to teach that way uh, in previous years i'd have a big whiteboard and i would write i would write for you the the the, the Hebrew letters, there are four that, that make up the name Yahweh without the vowels. And that, those four letters together are called the tetragrammaton. If you ever hear that word, the tetragrammaton is the four letters that make up the holy name of God, Yahweh, in Hebrew. So, uh, the, just a little side note there that when you hear the word Jehovah, hey, if that's what you're used to, and I love to sing those songs, it's okay, it's not a big deal. But it, you will usually hear me when I'm teaching always try to say the word Yahweh, because it's really more uh, correct. So, Yahweh, of course, is the word we find all throughout the Psalms for God. And so, we find this word hallel to praise, and Yah, God, praise God. That's the key word to the book of Psalms. This book, these these 150 psalms, if you will, songs, spiritual songs, are all about praising God. And here's the fascinating thing. They cover every single human emotion. The only book that covers every single human emotion is the book of Psalms. That's pretty amazing. So when we think about it, this is what St. Augustine said. St. Augustine said, the Psalms are the voices of the church. And then he said, they are the epitome of the whole of scriptures. The Psalms were so important to the early Christians that the earliest Christian bishops of the church, and this is still, I believe it's still practiced in the Eastern Orthodox tradition of Christianity. To be a bishop in the church, you had to have all of the psalms memorized. Isn't that amazing? All of the psalms memorized from memory, or you couldn't be a bishop in the church. And that was the ancient tradition, because in the monastic world, where there are, you know, the monks and the nuns, in the monastic world, ever since the ancient days, when monasticism began in the you know, the third century or so, uh, third or third or fourth, somewhere around there. Um, in that movement, where holy men and women would would go out into the desert and contemplate the scriptures and try and live an aesthetic life to to get closer to God and to contemplate the meaning of the word, uh, they they believed that uh, this whole this whole idea of the Psalms should be memorized, and so from the earliest days of monasticism, monastics pray the Psalms all the way through every week. One hundred and fifty. Now, and actually, in the Eastern tradition, in, in the ancient Church, there's actually one hundred and fifty-one Psalms. Did you know that? There's one hundred and fifty-one. There's an extra Psalm. hundred. Psalm one hundred and fifty-one. Uh, so it's kind of fascinating. Uh, you'll find that if you opened a Orthodox uh, Old Testament, which is, would be the Greek Septuagint, or if you opened like a Roman Catholic Bible, Old Testament, the Latin Vulgate, you would find that 151st Psalm uh, as well. Um, and it's a Psalm. It's a Psalm of David, uh, considered a Psalm of David, I believe. So now 100. So we read Psalm 50 tonight. I'm trying to give you a little background here. Um, the, the Psalms are so important. How important are they? If we look at the New Testament, there are 219 times that the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, 219 times. Of that 219 quotations, 116 are from the Psalms. Half of the quotations are from the Psalms. These Psalms were so important to the faith that we, I believe we underappreciate them. And I'm, I, I'm hoping that over the coming weeks and months as we study the Psalms, it's going to take on a whole new place in the life of everyone who learns along with us here. Um, it has been growing in my life. I continually go to the Psalms more and more in prayer just to read them and pray them. As, we, as you read them, that is like praying because you are speaking the words in many cases. Basically, I think you should just think you are reading the words of Jesus Christ, that he is the voice of the Psalms. I know that it was written by David or Moses or Asaph, but the spirit of the voice that has anointed them is Jesus Christ. So they are the voice of Christ And of course, the church is the body of Christ. So St. Augustine was right when he said they're the voice of the church. They're the voice of Jesus Christ. But to think it's the only book that has the full range of human emotion. Wow. It doesn't matter whether you are are full of thanksgiving or at the depths of despair. Whether you are lost in, in deep in sin or whether you are pursuing a path of holiness like never before. All the feelings of human emotion are found in the book of Psalms. That alone should make it worth our reading. Now, here's another point that I want to share with you about the book of Psalms. I'm going to come back to Psalm 50 in just a minute, which was our text of scripture tonight. I think this is is perhaps maybe the most important part for us to get. There is more, I'm going to make a statement here, there is more of Christ in the Psalms than there is of Christ in the Gospels. Now, if you ask anyone, where are you going to learn about the life of Christ? They'll send you to the Gospels, right? That's what they are. They're, They're the story of the life of Christ. Four different versions, all telling the story of the life of Christ to different audiences. The Gospels. But I'm telling you, I believe the book of Psalms has more of the life of Christ than the Gospels do. Let me tell you why. I'm going to back that up with this thought. In the Gospels, for instance, in the Gospels, we read that Jesus went to the mountain to pray. We read that Jesus went to a lonely place to pray. But in the book of Psalms, we actually read his prayers. What was Jesus praying? The New Testament doesn't give us that. It does in John chapter 17. We have that beautiful high priestly prayer of Jesus. But for the most part, it just tells us that he was a man of prayer. But when we realize that when we're reading the Psalms, we are reading the, the word of the Lord. We are reading the emotions that he felt in his humanness, as I talked about a couple of weeks ago when I talked about that psalm where he was hanging in the pit during the night what, awaiting his crucifixion and those feelings of despair, why, O oh Lord, have you abandoned me to the pit? Some things like that. You, you read in here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of these despairing emotions, there's the emotions Jesus felt in this life. But we also hear the divine, the revelation of, of his words, talking as we did tonight in Psalm 50. Now, I'm going to take a quick sip of water because my throat is starting to get a little scratchy, so forgive me for stopping to take a drink, um, but look at, if you have your Bibles, open them back to Psalm 50, and I want to kind of share a couple of thoughts here. In this psalm, I, two psalms, two of the, I think two of the most important psalms. One is Psalm 50, which we read tonight, and I did that on purpose at the, in the first of our classes here as we start to break open the study of the psalms. And the other one is Psalm 150, 50 and 150. Why are these two so important? Well, I'll start with 150. 150 is important because it is like the, it is like the chorus. Okay, you know, if you sing a hymn or a song, there's a chorus, right? And the chorus is kind of the theme, right? Well, in those, I think Psalm 150 is only six verses long. And 13 times it says, hallelujah. Okay, it says to praise God. So the theme of all the book of songs, in fact, the theme of all scripture really is Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. But Psalm 50 is the psalm that speaks to who God truly is, and who we are, and how we're supposed to live. So God is speaking directly to his people, like in verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am your God. Right there it is. God is saying, I am your God. And, and he goes on to tell them what they're doing wrong, why he's not going to accept their sacrifices because they're not coming from a heart of thanksgiving. He says in verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So he's not only telling them what to do, he's promising what he will do as God if they do it. Or shall I just stop using the they pronoun and just say we, He's telling us what we should do and what he will do if we will do it. (laughs) I love that about God and he just promises his blessings. At the same time, he pronounces a judgment. He promises his blessings if we will serve him. And so that's kind of the theme of Psalm 50. And I think that's so important because that's the story of God. The story of God is God seeking his people who are wayward, who are lost and revealing himself to them. Over 1,500 years, by 40 different authors, we hear the Bible, the story of God, God seeking his people to redeem back for himself the people of his own, the people of his creation. Now, the last part of Psalm 50 is important because of the words that I, I want to, uh, I put a little asterisk in, in my Bible right here, um. It seems fascinating to me, that the words in verse 21. Well, in verse 19 and 20, he says what they're doing wrong. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son, meaning your brother. This is done regularly by, by people every day. And God is saying, these things you have done, and I have been silent. And you thought that I was like you. Wow, there's a, there's a deep thought there. How many times has humanity lived in its sinfulness, thought there is no God, or if there is, he's like us. He's like us. Meaning he gets mad, he gets angry, he gets, you know, we, if we're not careful as human beings, we tend to reduce God down to human terms. That's called, a, when, when we think of the Godhead in a human way, that's called, in the Greek, which is the original language of Scripture, uh, especially the New Testament, uh, that's called an anthropomorphism. Anthropos means humanity, okay, in Greek. Morph, to morph is to change, like a metamorphosis. So we, we change God into human forms. So when the Scripture speaks of God, his hands, or his eyes are on the, on the, his eyes are everywhere seeking it. You know, the, God doesn't really have hands. God doesn't really have eyes. God the Father is spirit. Okay, God is spirit. Now, it is true that God took on human form in the incarnation in Jesus Christ. So, God, in the second person of the Holy Trinity, is human and will forever be human, but at the same time is still divine. The beautiful miracle of the two natures of Christ, of God, of Christ as God, fully human, fully divine. So we have to be careful with our anthropomorphic, that's a mouthful, careful with our anthropomorphic ways we think about God. Because the truth is God doesn't get angry. He's above that. Anger is a human emotion that he created us with the ability to feel. And there is righteous anger and there is unrighteous anger. So why does scripture speak to us in anthropomorphic terms about God? Because God is trying to reveal himself in ways that we can understand. But we must be careful not to reduce God down to the level of humanity. And that's what he's saying here. You thought I was like you. But now he says in the end of verse 21, I lay this charge against you. Mark this. Pretty powerful statement when God says, Mark this, Mark this, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver you, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Let me just read that again. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice. What have the people been doing? They've been offering bulls and goats you can say, well, Brad, God told him to offer bulls and goats back in the Mosaic law. Yes, he did. But he never told him to do it as a rote offering. It was always to have meaning. It was always to have worship. It was always to come from the heart. It was always meant to glorify God, not to appease him. And so now we come full circle today. If we just come to church because we're, we think we should, or we just come to church and worship God because we're afraid not to, we're no different than the people that were just sacrificing the bulls and goats. And they weren't really glorifying God with what? Thanksgiving. This is why a theme that you'll read a lot in the Psalms is to offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Right outside the doors to this church is is the beautiful Psalm quoted, and I, I forget the chapter and verse, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And into his courts with praise. There's the theme of what we're talking about. And God says right here, if you will do that to the one who orders his way rightly. In other words, the one who sets his life in order to live right, to live according to God's way. Then it says, I will show, I will show him the salvation of God. I will show him my salvation. That's a beautiful thought. Absolutely beautiful thought. Now I want to come full circle to the New Testament and I want to talk about why this is so important to Christians. There are some Christian people who think that because the Psalms are part of the Old Testament, they don't understand how they, they are the revelation of Jesus Christ. They are the words of Jesus Christ. That they don't feel that they have all that much application to our life and so therefore they don't read them that often. They don't concentrate on them. They think, oh, it's just part of the old. Well, the truth is, All of the Old Testament reveals Jesus Christ. When the church of Jesus Christ was founded, let's just use the day of Pentecost as the beginning. The Holy Spirit falls, the church is empowered, 3,000 people are saved, and now there's a church meeting. That is still not the beginning. That's not the beginning because there's always been a covenant people of God. Since God made the covenant with Abraham, he has had his people. His people were wayward, his people rejected him, crucified his Christ, his anointed one, and walked away from their God. And God in his goodness, in his fullness, even had a sovereign plan knowing that would happen So that the fullness of the Gentiles, which means everyone else in the world, would come in to the church. So, in the Old Testament, the people of God was Israel. In the New Testament, who is the people of God? It's still Israel. But who is Israel? Well, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Romans. Let's look at the book of Romans to answer this question. Because this is so important to our identity. I didn't have it marked, so take me just a minute. We're going to go to Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, St. Paul is teaching about the remnant of Israel. And remember, St. Paul is, uh, is, is considered himself a Jew of Jews. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Proud of his Jewish heritage. A ruler of the Jews, if you will. And he has a lot to say about God's plan for God's people, the Jews. All through this chapter 11 of the book of Romans, he begins by talking about, uh, he he, asks, he says, I ask then, this is verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Since Israel rejected Jesus, in other words, since the Jews rejected Jesus. He says, for I myself am an Israelite. And then he kind of gives his pedigree there. And, and he says, um, he goes down, you, you follow it a little longer, and he says, well, what then has, this is verse 7, has Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? Has the elect of God obtained it, but the rest were hardened? Um, the elect of God, when you hear the word the elect of God in the New Testament, that means the Christians who do believe. Okay, the Christians who do believe, or in this case, the Gentiles, first Jews, the first Christians were Jews. And then, of course, they brought in the Gentiles. And and it says here, he goes through the next few verses talking about how God allowed the Jewish people to let their hearts be hardened, to, to sacrifice the Messiah, because it was all a part of his plan to bring us in. In verse 11, he starts to talk about the Gentiles are grafted in. Um, and so let's read, let's start with, um, let's start with verse 11. So I ask, did they, they, meaning the Jews stumble in order that they might fall by no means rather through their trespass or through their falling or through their rejecting of salvation through their trespass, salvation has now come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul is prophesying there will be a day when the Jews will come back into the fold. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much, verse 13 now, if you're following along, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And the root is holy, so are the branches." This is very key in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Meaning the branches that are still there, meaning that would be the Jews in our world. If you are, then remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through your faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even though they did not continue, even though if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and then grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So now, what Paul is doing is he's painting us a picture of Israel as a natural olive tree. It's a beautiful symbol of God's people, the, the, the olive tree. Olive trees can live thousands of years. If you go to Israel today, you will see in the Garden of Gethsemane, olive trees with trunks bigger than I can reach around. That's because they're thousands of years old. And and the olive tree, he's saying that some of these branches rejected Jesus, therefore they were broken off. And we, being like wild olive trees, the Gentiles, we were grafted in. So where are we? If the olive tree is Israel and we've been grafted in, who are we? We're Israel. The church of Jesus Christ is the Israel of the new covenant. Therefore, When we read, God only has one Israel, just like he has one church. And we are it. We are Israel and we are the church of Jesus Christ. So when we read in the Old Testament, anything about Israel, don't think of that as they and how that was long ago and none of that matters. Think of it as us. This is the story of us. We're just all part of the covenant people of God. Some have been broken off by their own belief. St. Paul tells us they will be grafted back in. St. Paul tells us to not be arrogant, to not be proud because we have Christ and they don't, but to be loving and to be prayerful and to understand. But he makes it very clear that God's kindness is provided that we continue in faith. So none of this happens, whether it's to the Jews in the Old Testament or to the Gentiles, to us in the New Testament, none of it happens arbitrarily. It all happens by God's grace when we put our faith. That's what it means to continue in his kindness, to put our faith in him. So I say all that to to come back to the Psalms. Who are they speaking to? They're speaking to you and I today. They're speaking to God's covenant people. These are the prayers of Jesus. These are the emotions of Jesus. These should be the prayers and emotions of God's people. And if we will let them, they will speak to us in as much as they spoke to anyone in the Old Testament days. So that's kind of an introduction into the book of Psalms. And so next week we'll start with Psalm 1 and we will look at the importance. I'm going to Compare and contrast Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 next week. So don't miss next week. You gotta understand what Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are talking about in order to understand the rest of the book of Psalms. Those are critical. So that's for next week. So thank you now for being with us. Thank you for for studying online with us tonight. Thank you for praying with us. Continue to pray. Join us Sunday morning when our prayer table will have candles lit These candles represent people who are being prayed over for healing. This is a month of healing. We are believing in the healing power of God. And we're learning what that healing power means in our Sunday morning worship. So join us on Sunday mornings, if you will. But but now let me me just close us with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for time in your word tonight to study your word. We ask your blessing on what we have learned. Open our minds, open our hearts to embrace your truth, to be your people. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry, and I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today, and may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as He forms His Spirit within you